There's not many films that I watch and remember a couple of years on, but one such film is a movie called 1492. Now, if you know a bit of history, then you'll guess what it's about. It retells the epic journey of Christopher Columbus as he travelled on his historic journey westward to finally discover the Americas. And one of the striking features in the film, as it's portrayed, is the sense of purpose that this man, Christopher Columbus, has. He is a driven man. He is a purpose-driven man. And he's been given a mandate by some wealthy Spanish elites to forge a trade route westward to India, something which has never been done before, which seems crazy to some, impossible to others. But that's his mandate. And what you find throughout the film is that he will not be deflected from this purpose, regardless of what the people around him think or say or do. So at one stage, he's held in great renown. There's huge popularity around this man, Columbus. He's almost like a godlike figure. Later on in the story, as it seems as if they're never going to land, there's incredulity. They just don't believe that he's right in his contention. And eventually, as it develops even further, there's outright hostility to him and a mutiny bruise. There's this kaleidoscope of responses. But, here's the thing, all the way along and all the way through, Columbus keeps his head and keeps his course because he's fulfilling a mandate, you see. Now, I think, therefore, we'll see tonight some striking parallels between that film portrayal and the portrait that Luke gives in the fourth chapter of his Gospel of another man. Because Jesus, as Luke portrays him, is a driven man. Uh, He isn't drifting around wondering what to do and what to say next. He has a definite agenda which has been placed upon him by his heavenly Father. And he goes forward undistracted by the climate of opinion ever-changing. Through popularity, through incredulity, through hostility, Jesus keeps his head and he maintains his course all the way eventually to the cross. It's a compelling portrait and I invite you to study it with me for just a few moments before we come around the Lord's table. Let's turn to Luke chapter 4. Some of you are already doing it. Luke chapter 4. This is part of this series which we've commenced in Luke's gospel. Good news of great joy for all people. And here in this chapter, we'll see how the cool hand of Luke paints a picture of a driven Jesus fulfilling the mandate of his Father. Just before we read, let's let's just pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would come and give us understanding of God's Word. Let's pray. Father, as you have met us in the singing, now meet us in the Word. Open up the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things in your word. And especially 
breathtaking truths about your Son. Help us to see him for who he is and for what he's done. Through Jesus we pray. Amen. Verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. And he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. I tell you the truth, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time, when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him down the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is God's precious word. Now we're going to see this silver thread which is running its way, weaving its way through the passage. This idea that Jesus is fulfilling this mandate which has been given to him by his heavenly Father. But I think Luke wants us to grasp that this is no easy matter. This is no easy thing for Jesus to obey his Father's will and to finish the mission that he has been assigned. And I think this is why we have this, uh, these reactions of the crowd that Luke offers to us. In fact, three negative responses to Jesus, ultimately. Luke wants us to see that these responses could have discouraged Jesus in his mission, They could have tempted Jesus to make adjustments in the way that he carries out his mission in a way that would not have pleased his heavenly Father. But Jesus doesn't change course because he has a mandate. He has a mandate. So let's look at these responses in turn. And I think you'll see that they're the same sorts of responses that people still make today to Jesus. Uh, Who knows, maybe you'll even see some of these responses in yourself 
as we look at them tonight. So first of all, popularity. Popularity. As Jesus launches his ministry in Galilee, there's a very interesting thing as you compare the different Gospels. You, in fact, find that Luke omits almost a year of Jesus' early ministry. If you go over to John's Gospel in the early part, he sort of fills in the blanks for us. And we find that after Jesus' temptation, which finishes at verse 13, Jesus, in fact, returned north to the region of Galilee, to Cana for a wedding. After this, he came back south again. And you have all these wonderful stories. Jesus clearing the temple. Jesus conversing with Nicodemus. Jesus meeting the Samaritan woman at the well, and so on. And yet, Luke records none of these stories. Because he has different concerns to John in writing his gospel. And instead, Luke takes us north, which had more associations with non-Jewish people, with Gentile people. And he fast-forwards almost a year. And therefore, the connection between verses 13, last week's sermon, and this week, verse 14 following, is not chronological. Instead, it's a spiritual connection. Indeed, it is the person of the Holy Spirit. We're told that Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, verse 14. The same Spirit who was involved in Jesus' conception, who anointed Jesus at baptism, who guided Jesus into and through his temptation, now empowers Jesus for his public ministry. And however long has passed, however many months, the point is this, that Jesus is still the Spirit-filled man. And what is it that the Holy Spirit is inspiring Jesus to do? Well, look, it is to teach the good news about himself. This was his priority in this early part of his ministry. He taught, says Luke, in the synagogues. And whatever side of the charismatic divide we come from, I'm sure this is something we can all agree on, that as we preach the gospel, it is indeed a spirit-filled activity. It is impossible to share our faith with others to any effect without the work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, the most charismatic individual who has ever lived, is empowered by the Holy Spirit to teach the good news concerning himself. And he does this, says Luke, in, in the place that is Galilee. Uh, Josephus, who was a historian at the time, uh, tells us that there were about 240 towns and villages in Galilee. It was a little bit up and out of the way, but it was a pretty well populated area. And you can see why it took Jesus the best part of a year and a half to preach his way around this area. And it was, of course, a fulfillment of prophecy. You remember Isaiah chapter 9? There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, says Isaiah, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea. And Isaiah goes on to explain how this blessing will come through the very presence of God's promised king. And you would imagine that if this were to come true, if this were to actually happen, that it would cause quite a stir. And it does. It does. Verse 15, 
gives us the people's response. Everyone praised him. Everyone praised him. Wherever he went, they said good things about him. Literally, Luke says, they glorified him. Now, let me pause here and ask you a question. Is this a far cry from our situation in 2006? Because you might say, well, we don't live in a day, do we, where Jesus is popular? Are you so sure? Are you so sure? Let me suggest that among many people, actually, Jesus is quite an iconic figure. Uh, Institutional religion, of course, is not in vogue today. But Jesus, well, that's a slightly different story. So if you watch The Simpsons, as at least one of our congregation does, or South Park, another American comedy cartoon, uh, you'll see Jesus turning up on the show. I don't watch it, but I'm told. He turns up every now and again. And it's not derogatory. It's not intended to be derogatory anyway. Uh, on he comes. Or, or popular music. Depending on your era, your musical taste, uh, everybody from Robbie Williams to U2 to Sting, others make numerous references to Jesus in their songs. It's kind of cool to include Jesus in your lyrics. Or read some of the biographies of popular people. I made reference, I think, before Christmas to Peter Kay, the comedian's biography, which is out and selling well at the moment. Now, Peter Kay is one of the probably top ten most popular people in the UK. And yet he spends pages in his book speaking of how he follows the teachings of Jesus. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? And yet, while this might seem encouraging to some degree, nevertheless, now and back in Luke's time, often this is quite a superficial appreciation. It's not deep. And it should be borne in mind, says one commentator, that this popularity was by no means unqualified. At times, those who at first were filled with enthusiasm became adversely critical and even antagonistic as soon as they began to realize that Christ's teaching conflicted with their prejudices. Is that you tonight? Are you like that? Do you take the popular view of Jesus? You like some of the things he stands for? You applaud some of his nicer, easier teachings? But it's nothing deeper. It's nothing more than that. And if someone were to press you about the more demanding things that Jesus said, you'd be put right off. Well, that's what these people were like. And what we need to see in the context of the passage is this, that Jesus will not be swayed. He will not be swayed by this popularity that he receives. He doesn't sort of kick back by the time we get to verse 15 in this blaze of glory. Like some famous person who, the moment they get famous, can't be bothered doing whatever it was they did, to get famous. Jesus isn't like this. And so he goes on. He goes on to Nazareth, his hometown, where he is met with a slightly different response. Popularity. Secondly, incredulity. I was just trying to get the words to parallel. That means unbelief. Unbelief. Incredulity. Now, this isn't what you might have expected. Because... As Luke points out, when Jesus returns to Nazareth, he's actually going back to his hometown, where he had been brought up. 
Although Jesus was born in Bethlehem, uh, though his ministry headquarters in Galilee was based in Capernaum, uh, though he died just outside the city of Jerusalem, nevertheless, in the Gospels, he is frequently referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. That was his hometown. That's where he came from. It was the place to which Joseph and Mary finally arrived after their flight to Egypt. Remember, way back in the Christmas story. And it appears, contrary to some popular views, that the majority of Jesus' early life was spent in Nazareth. But but here is Jesus. And he's been away from home for at least a year. And he's returning in very different circumstances. The boy they all knew is now the man whom all of Israel knows about. Without seeing to trivialize, I was thinking of these pop idol contestants. You know, they go onto these shows, they become hugely popular overnight, and then halfway through the program, they take them back to Newcastle or Liverpool or Glasgow, and there's thousands of people, different circumstances. But Jesus doesn't go to any of the parties that they put on for him. Instead, he goes up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, says Luke. So, passing note, but when you read in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, read about the Sabbath day, and you'll find that Jesus is in the synagogue. He's in the synagogue. It was a custom for Jesus. And if it was good for Jesus, the Son of God, maybe it's a good custom for us. He's there, and as he sits in the synagogue, no doubt the Service runs in the usual order. You probably don't know what that is, but actually, our services mirror, to some extent, the way that these ran. So they would begin with an opening hymn, an opening song. And then the congregation would stand together and they would recite the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then there would be some blessings. And then there would be the reading of the Scriptures which the congregation would stand for. And they would begin by reading from the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy, selection of readings. And then there would be the second readings from the prophets. And it seems that it is in this second reading that Jesus gets up and he reads the scriptures. He's given the prophecy of Isaiah. Apparently it is just selected for him. But then Jesus selects the portion that he wants. And what a portion it is. It's a familiar messianic prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And after this, Jesus sits down. I'll not do this tonight, but in those days they preached sitting down. I don't know how they did it. And He expounds the text. And look at this little comment. Just to give us a little glimpse into the situation, he says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Uh, We might say today they were waiting with bated breath. You know, you could hear a pin drop. How, How will Jesus apply this particular scripture? What will he say about it? And whatever they were expecting, what Jesus says is beyond anything they could conceive. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. As Jesus applies his scripture, he does two amazing things. Number one, he applies it to the here and now. Uh, Just imagine for a moment that uh, you came this evening, and for talking's sake, let's say the theme 
of the scripture reading was the second coming of Jesus. Some of you have heard many sermons on the second coming of Jesus. But just imagine that I got up here and I said, you know, there's something different about today's sermon. Actually, this promise of the second coming of Jesus is going to happen today. Get your bags packed, so to speak. Get, get yourself ready because Jesus, he's coming today. Now, I bet you that would change the attention you would give to the sermon. Of course, I couldn't say that because only the Father knows the day or the hour. But it's that kind of immediacy, isn't it? See, usually when people preached on a text like this, they would say, Sunday. Someday God's going to fulfill this prophecy. Someday the oppressed and the enslaved, physically, spiritually, they're going to be liberated. But it would always be someday. And Jesus comes and he lifts up this text and he says, Today, today it is happening. And therefore, there's a second implication which they would have gradually began to realize. If the kingdom is coming, if it's arrived, then the king must be here also. And he would have read verse 18, surely the way Jesus intended it, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. See, he's applying the the scriptures to himself. Today, he says, I'm bringing this to fruition. Now, needless to say, the Nazarene crowd had never heard anything like this before. It was amazing teaching. Maybe the preachers of the weeks before hadn't even been that great. And in comes Jesus, the greatest teacher who has ever lived, and he proclaims a stunning teaching. No wonder that they speak well of him, verse 22, and are amazed at his gracious words. Wow, what a speaker, what an exposition. But it doesn't take long to see that there's not a lot deeper than that. In fact, almost immediately, they're trying to put Jesus back in his place. Put Jesus back in his box. Because after all, they say, you know, we knew him since he was knee-high. Isn't this just the son of the carpenter? Isn't this just amazing, they say? Such good preaching, and yet, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph couldn't do anything like this. And you see, it's the beginning signs that there's a skepticism lying just beneath the surface. And Jesus, never one to allow things to remain buried, quickly uncovers this and confronts it. He says, I know your hearts. I know you'll never be satisfied with what I say or what I do. And soon you'll be saying to me, physician, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. Prove yourself. Show us a miracle. And deep down, these people lack the faith to trust in Jesus because, and this is very interesting, they are over-familiar with him. They're over-familiar. It is a peculiar problem, and it is a common problem, even today. It is true, of course, that if people never hear of Jesus, if they don't hear enough to obtain an accurate picture, they cannot accept the gospel. You can be too far away to be saved. But while distance can be a problem, sometimes close proximity is is another difficulty. Because, you know, Jesus, he's he's just that guy that I've heard about since I was knee-high. And we can't see him for the man who is God. 
And maybe that's a problem that you face. Maybe you've grown up in a Christian home. Maybe you come from a religious background and it all seems so passy. Isn't this just Jesus? And we miss the fact, as Luke 3.38 says, that this is not only the son of Adam, he is a man, but this is also the son of God. In John's Gospel we read that he came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. What a sad thing if that were to be said of us. And this incredulity soon led to something more sinister. Thirdly, hostility. And this emerges, I think, because Jesus won't let it go, actually. Uh, He's not happy with this unbelief that's in their hearts And he wants to show it for what it is. And he proclaims an age-old truth. He says, you know, the reason that you don't believe in me is because it's always been this way. Don't you know, I tell you the truth, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. And in case you think I'm just making this up, he says, let me give you two prominent examples. Elijah, the great prophet, and Elijah, his assistant. Hometown rejection in either case. Don't you know that Elijah was sent to someone who was not from within the bounds of Israel? And Elijah the same? And of course, if they understand this, they will see that there's a staggering implication here. The implication is not only of the fact that as they reject Christ, he rejects them, but also of the fact that these outsiders, these non-Jewish people are being included. Because the widow of Elijah's time, she was from Sidon. And Naaman, whom Elisha healed, was Syrian. Out with the covenant God had made with his people. Out with the people of Israel. I love the way that one writer, Henriksen, puts it. God's grace overleaps artificial, man-made barricades. Not only those of village, city and province, but even those of people and country. It's one of the primary emphasis of Luke's gospel. That the message of Jesus is good news of great joy for all people. Every culture, every language, every background, every sin problem. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've come from. Never say people like me don't become Christians. They do. By God's sovereign grace. But, you know, in response to that fact, you can go two directions. You can either be deeply appreciative, deeply thankful, put your trust in Jesus, or you can get really, really angry, as these people do. In fact, Luke says they were furious when they heard this. They drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill, as he would later do in the gospel, to crucify him. And in this occasion, attempted to throw him off. Furious because Jesus claimed that God's grace extended so far. I think maybe today, if you're thinking about how we apply this, maybe the opposite problem happens. The Jews were upset that the boundaries were being extended beyond them to others. They wanted God's blessing all for themselves. Today... It's the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. We're saying, we don't want God's grace. Extend it to me, we don't want it. 
How arrogant people say to suggest that regardless of religious background, we should follow this Jesus, that there's one way to God. And so you can say without hostility, Jesus is a saviour, as long as you don't say he's the saviour. You can say that it's good news for some people, just not all people. That's intolerant, arrogant, and even dangerous. But we've got to say it. We've got to say it, Christians, to our friends and our neighbours. It's very difficult to say it, but we've got to because Luke said it, and Luke said it because Jesus said it. His way, Jesus' way, is the only way to construct our lives in time and in eternity in a way that will last. I don't know if you've ever constructed some IKEA furniture uh, or something like that. If you're a man, especially, then instructions are annoying. I don't know what it is about instructions, but just, yeah. And these instructions, if they're good instructions, they will tell you clearly how you construct the table or the chest of drawers. And it may even be that there is only one way to do it. But what happens? What happens? Right? In our wisdom, men, maybe especially, we have this built-in defiance. How dare this little instruction manual tell me how to do it? I can put this little table together on my own. And what happens? We do it our way. Nine times out of ten, in my case, ten times out of ten, it doesn't work. Now, if that's true of constructing a little table. How do we possibly think that we can construct our whole lives and even beyond our death, our eternity, on our own? Without the Maker's instructions. Without the help of Jesus. We need to come to the one who is the way, who has the truth, who is the life. And we need to say, Lord, be my saviour, be my guide, be my teacher. Sadly, sadly, the crowd failed to do this. They were furious with Jesus. And Luke, as any good author should, leaves us with a cliffhanger, quite literally, in verse 29, at the end of the story. And I want to finish with this in conclusion, so that you're not in suspense any longer. Jesus has the last say. And he tells us that he walked right through the crowd, and he went in this way. See, it wasn't time. It wasn't time for Jesus to die. Not yet. We don't know how he did it. Luke doesn't tell us. What matters is, whether by miracle or the mere majesty of his presence, Jesus kept his head and Jesus kept his course. He wasn't diverted by Satan. He wasn't distracted by people, popularity, incredulity, hostility. didn't matter. And you know, because he did, eventually he came all the way to the cross, to this place that we remember this evening. And he gave us, all of us, the opportunity to experience God's grace. Even if we've rejected Jesus many times before. Are you ready to follow the one that spilled his blood for you? Are you ready to proclaim him in all his glory to a dying world? Let's pray.